It is so good to be back with you today. I've been away for a little bit. Brenda and I got to go and celebrate our 40-year anniversary, taking a trip of a lifetime to Scotland, where we had just a wonderful time together. I'm grateful for uh, Dr. Jessica, for Jared, and for Laura and the panel that met last week as they discussed uh, this idea of how, what it means to share your faith with other people. I'm sure you got a lot of good out of it, like I did too. Well, today I'm beginning a brand new series that I'm call calling The Story of the Bible, and today's message is all about whether or not we can trust the Bible. Would you take a moment and pray with me right now? Father, I'm grateful that we have this time together and especially grateful that we get to delve into your word, literally. We get to talk about this book that has come down to us in history, your words, your truth to our heart. I pray that today, if there's someone who is struggling uh, with whether or not they can believe the Bible, with with uh, whether they be believers or non-believers, that God, you would use this message as a as a way to bolster their faith and encourage their heart and to give us all hope. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, people say familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, the more we get to know a person or thing, the more we tend to notice its flaws and imperfections. The more familiar we are, the more critical and disillusioned we become. But I got to tell you, after nearly 50 years of reading and studying the Bible, there's no question this book is very familiar to me, but my passion and desire for the Word have only grown over time, not diminished. I'm still captivated by the Bible's message, and I'm amazed at how intricately interwoven it actually is. I still make new discoveries in its pages. I find layers of truth embedded in stories that I'd never noticed before. Spending time in God's Word has just simply never lost its luster for me. I'm still exhilarated when I sit down to read it. And when I teach, I try to share that excitement exhilaration. For me, studying Scripture is like turning a diamond underneath a bright light. Its beauty is just reflected in every facet of the diamond. It makes me marvel at the God who inspired the very words of Scripture. And because of my experience with reading and studying the Bible, I honestly don't get it when people want to disparage it, when people say things like it's full of flaws and errors and mistakes. I mean, sincerely, only when you read this book in the most superficial ways do you ever come away with that conclusion. Here's the truth. We're at an all-time low in Bible reading and Bible knowledge in America. Many who claim to know the Bible only know what they've heard other people say. Their knowledge of Scripture is secondhand at best, and not the result of digging into the Word for themselves. This is why so many are so easily deceived. At the same time, we have more information at our fingertips than ever before. We're regularly exposed to ideas and theories that either affirm our faith or contradict it. Someone has said, the speed and volume of information we access today is inversely proportional to the depth of knowledge. In other words, we often think we know something when we really don't. We've lost our critical thinking skills. Our knowledge of a subject is about a mile wide and an inch deep. We're exposed to so many new ideas without a process as to how to evaluate whether those ideas are even true. Instead, we just go with how it makes me feel, which is basically a pagan philosophy called existentialism. So today, I find myself countering ideas that I heard debunked 30 and 40 years ago, back when I was in Bible college and seminary. Things like, you really can't trust the Bible, or it's not inspired, or it's been changed and added to by every generation. Or one that's really popular today, I only believe in the red letters of the Bible. 
Now, in case you weren't aware, there are some Bible translations that highlight the words of Christ in red to make them distinctive from the other words of Scripture. In fact, there's an entire organization today that's called Red Letter Christian. Now, just to be clear, that's not what they believe, that only the red letters can be trusted. But a lot of people have mistakenly got that idea that what, that's what Red Letter Christians are all about. Now, I'm personal friends with the former executive director of Red Letter Christians. I've traveled with him to Africa. I've listened to him teach, and he's listened to me teach on more than one occasion. We've had numerous theological discussions. Red Letter Christians aren't saying that only the red letters matter or that only the red letters are inspired. They're simply saying what I've said for years, that Jesus is the clearest representation of God we've ever seen. So if you want to understand the rest of the Bible, I need to read it through a Christological lens or a Jesus-centered approach. And I totally agree with that idea. Jesus is the lens through which I read and understand the rest of Scripture. But the whole Bible is the voice of God, the red letters and the black ones too. Neither is more inspired than the other. When you treat the red letters more seriously than you do the black ones, you muzzle the Son of God who speaks in all of them. Jesus once said this to the religious leaders of his day. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. That's John 5.39. Now, the scriptures Jesus is referring to here are the books of the Old Testament. And he said those scriptures are all about him. This is what I mean by reading the Bible through a Christ-centered lens. The Old Testament testifies about Jesus, and you won't see that unless and until you read it through the lens of Christ. So by extension, if you want a thorough knowledge of Jesus, you need to know and understand what the Old Testament's all about. Now, here's something else. Did you know that one-tenth of everything Jesus ever said were quotations from the Old Testament? Jesus believed in the Old Testament scriptures. He quoted them. He treated them as authoritative. If you say you only believe the red letters of Jesus, yet Jesus endorsed the Old Testament as being about him, it makes no sense that you wouldn't want to know more about Jesus through the Old Testament. Or like Dr. Timothy Keller once said, we cannot in the end follow Jesus without adopting his loyalty to the Bible. I'd also say if you only believe the red letters of Jesus, then surely you believe what he said in John 16. I still have many things to say to you, but can, you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but speak whatever he hears, he, what, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, he's going to glorify Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So get what Jesus is saying here. He's telling his followers that he has a lot more to say to them than they were able to hear in the moment. He then promised that through his Holy Spirit, his teaching ministry would continue. He would continue to speak to them. Now listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in light of that. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Christ's promise is fulfilled in Paul's teaching. The ministry of Jesus marches on through the ministry of the apostles. That's because Jesus has a lot more to say to us. He promised to reveal even more truth through his apostles through his spirit. Paul is just exhibit A. So why would someone only believe the red letters in the gospel when Jesus himself said, I got a lot more to say to you, but I can only do it later through my spirit and through my followers. 
Let me also say, if you believe only in the red letters in the New Testament, you need to include the red letters, not just in the Gospel of John, but also the other book that John wrote called the book of Revelation. Because in chapters two and three of that book, they're filled with what Jesus had to say to seven churches of Asia Minor. In that teaching, you see another side to Jesus that includes correcting bad teaching and addressing illicit sexual behaviors. That's Jesus speaking too. But let me tell you what's typically going on when someone disparages the Bible, claiming it to be untrue or choosing only to believe the parts they like while disregarding all the rest. What they're actually saying is, my opinion is higher and more authoritative than the Bible itself. That there really isn't an objective standard of truth, there's just my truth. In other words, I get to determine what's right and wrong for me, and I only accept what God says if I agree with what God says. Let me tell you something. If I had to depend on my own sense of what was right and wrong or good and bad for me, I can't even imagine the mess my life would be in right now. God's idea and direction for my life has always been counter to the selfishness that persists in me because that's the human condition. That's what it means to be a sinner. I want what I want, and I don't care what God wants. That's what needs to be redeemed and healed in me. But today, many elevate this broken part of humanity, this part of us that wants our own way and wants to be our own God as if it were the most important thing about us. So the big question we're left with is this, can the Bible be trusted? What test might we administer to it that would give us solid reason or evidence to trust its message? I have six tests that I'd like to share with you today. And the first one is this, take note of the history. Now, if you've ever watched a courtroom drama, whether it be live or on television, you'll always hear lawyers asking witnesses a ton of detailed questions that don't seem to relate directly to the issue at hand. What they're trying to do is establish whether or not a witness is telling the truth. And they're going to do it on the basis of this principle. It's almost impossible to establish a lie in the midst of a well-known history. In other words, the more details that they can get you to admit, the better they can establish whether or not you're telling the truth. And that's because the truth is supported by numerous incidental details. And lies, they tend to break down because they didn't happen. Therefore, the details don't support the lie. This is what courtroom, courtroom attorneys are trying to do, get as many details surrounding an event on the record because lies will always break down in the midst of a well-known history. So how does this relate to the Bible? Well, let me explain. Sometimes people get bogged down when they're reading certain passages in the Bible that are filled with things like this person begat that person who begat that person, or so-and-so ruled from this time to that time, or these cities signed a treaty while these cities were at war. Yet it's because of all those incidental details that the Bible's credibility has been proven again and again. Why? Because those details are there by design. They give us the ability to fact check the record. It's hard to establish a lie in the midst of a well-known history. Throughout the Bible, there are hundreds and hundreds of government officials who are named, times and places that are marked, events in history that are described. This makes the Bible truly unique and unlike any other religion or their sacred writings. There simply is no other major religion whose sacred writings include the sheer number of historical markers like the Bible does, which means it's harder to fact check their sacred books, but not the Bible. The Bible's different. The heart of the Christian faith is a series of events recorded in time and history. 
As soon as you say during the reign of this king in this city, a man named Jesus said this, you're not just recalling what Jesus said, but you're also making a claim about history. And those historical markers are precisely what have helped to prove the reliability of the Bible. Because we can determine whether or not those people or places or events are actually real or actually happen. A little later, we'll talk more about these external witnesses and why they matter. So let's kind of bookmark that thought for now, and let's talk about another way we can answer the question, can the Bible be trusted? Something else you can do to test the Bible, verify the records. Do you remember playing the telephone game as a kid? When you were a kid, you know, one child whispered a message in the ear of the child next to them, and then that message is relayed to the next child, and on and on, until the last child is told and has to repeat the message. Invariably, it's never the same message. It's usually completely distorted and nothing like the original message. Skeptics often use this analogy to describe how the Bible came down to us. They say, just like the telephone game, each generation heard the message, then added to it, distorted it, took something away, so that now what we have is hopelessly flawed and nothing like it was when it started. Now, you've probably heard people say things like, don't you know every generation has added whatever they wanted to the Bible? Now, you should know this objection has been around for years and years. I encountered it 40 years ago in Bible college and seminary. But most people who raise this objection simply don't know the facts. And the facts are clearly on the Bible's side. First, the telephone game doesn't accurately capture the manner in which the Bible was transmitted to us. Like for one, the message was not transmitted orally, which admittedly is a mode of communication that's very easy to distort. The Bible was handed down in writing. Second, there wasn't just one line of communication. Instead, there was one letter that was copied by hand multiple times by many different people over many different years, eventually resulting in a host of manuscript copies. Third, historians don't rely on the last person in the chain as the best representation of the message, but they look to the earliest sources we can find, those closest to the original source, to determine what the original message was. Believe it or not, when it comes to historical documents like the Bible, there are some established protocols that scholars have used for years to determine whether or not a document is reliable and has been faithfully transmitted over time. These protocols not only apply to the Bible, but also other books written in ancient times. So what I'd like to do for you in the next several minutes is, is not try to prove to you that the Bible is the Word of God. Instead, I'd just like to examine whether or not that what we have is an accurate representation of what the authors originally wrote. So one of the first factors to keep in mind when it comes to ancient literature is simply this. Books in antiquity were written on perishable materials. Simply put, the medium they used to write on had very little hope of lasting for 2,000 years. Just consider this simple fact. Do you know how long it takes for a modern piece of paper to break down in a landfill? Studies show it takes between 5 to 15 years for paper to break down in a landfill. I mean, some of you have seen at bookstores, or maybe even in your own home, you have a family Bible that's completely falling apart, and it's likely not even 100 years old yet. But the binding no longer holds the pages together. The, the pages themselves are brittle, and they can crumble just by turning a page. Now imagine the unusual circumstances needed for an ancient piece of paper to survive for 2,000 years or more. Also, consider the fact that the last book of the Bible was written 1,300 years before the invention of the printing press. 
In those centuries, several of the world's great libraries, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome, were all burned as hordes of barbarians swept through the lands where copies of scriptures were kept. Invaders looted and destroyed the temple and synagogues where ancient copies of the Bible were housed. Or how about this simple reality? Jerusalem itself was conquered 47 times between 1800 BC and AD 1948. For this reason, none of the original documents of the books of the Bible exist. We don't have any. All we have are copies of copies of copies. By the way, that's just not true of the Bible. Literally, all ancient documents from the writings of Caesar, the poets and philosophers of old, and even ancient historians, we possess none of the originals. Everything we have in our possession today is a copy. Papyri, which is the form of paper they use, was made from the reed plant. It simply can't last that long. So as documents began to decay, a new copy was made, and the old one was either buried or destroyed. So what are the protocols for evaluating ancient writing and their reliability? Well, it really comes down to two questions. One, how many ancient copies do we have? In other words, the more ancient copies you have, the higher likelihood you can determine what the original said. And two, how big is the time gap between the original and the copy? Obviously, the shorter the time gap between the oldest copy and the original writing, the greater confidence that it's unadulterated. So here's how major literature of antiquity stacks up in terms of number of manuscripts that exist. Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have 10 manuscripts of that. Plato's Tetralogies, 7 manuscripts. Aristotle, the works, his works, we have 49 manuscripts of Aristotle. In all of ancient Greek and Latin literature, the work with the second highest number of manuscripts is Homer's Iliad, and we have 643 manuscripts for that. Those are the top texts when it comes to ancient Greek and Latin literature, but like I said, Homer's Iliad is just number two. Here's the number one source. The New Testament of the Bible, we have 24,633 manuscripts. Honestly, the number of manuscript copies of the New Testament is mind-boggling. In Greek alone, we have more than 5,800 copies consisting of 2.5 million pages of text. Listen to this. If you laid the surviving copies of Aristotle on top of one another, it would barely uh, make four feet. If you do the same with the surviving copies of the New Testament, the stack would be a mile high. So think about it. Aristotle's works have been studied for centuries. No one doubts their historical importance or that we substantially have what Aristotle wrote. But the Bible surpasses Aristotle in accuracy, quantity, and quality. These are real documents. They exist. Some of them are on display at the British Museum in London, others at the National Library in Paris, and still others at the Beatty Museum in Dublin. In terms of the number of manuscripts we have, nothing even comes close to the New Testament. So then there's the second question, the second protocol, and that's the time gap. This is where you compare when a manuscript was originally written with the time of the earliest copy in existence. For example, Caesar's Gallic Wars originally was written between 144 BC. The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. That's a gap of a thousand years. Plato's Tetralogies was written 427, 427 to 347 BC. The earliest copy we have there is 900 AD. That's a gap of 1200 years. Aristotle, he originally written between 384 and 322 BC, the earliest copy we have of any of his writings is from 1100 AD, and that's a 1400-year time gap. 
Homer's Iliad fares better than the others with only a 500-year time gap because it was originally written in 900 BC. The earliest copy we have is from 400 BC. Now, I want you to compare that to the New Testament. The New Testament was originally written between 40 and 100 AD. The earliest copy we have is 125 AD. That's a gap of only somewhere between 25 to 50 years. Dr. Dan Wallace, he was one of my Greek professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. Today, he's probably the foremost manuscript authority in the world. Here's what he said. The earliest confirmed copies in the New Testament scriptures date back to 114 AD. This means that the time between our earliest copy and the date of the original writing is at most just 50 years. By this criteria, the Bible is the most historically reliable book of antiquity that exists because the gap between what we have and what was written is short when compared to what we have in relation to other Greek works from around the same time. Josh McDowell has said this, I believe there's more evidence for the reliability of the New Testament than for any other 10 pieces of classical literature put together. Now, what's kind of comical to me is that no one today seriously doubts the historical reliability of Plato or Aristotle or Homer. No one ever questions whether or not these men ever existed. Yet there always seems to be a vocal, minor, uh, a vocal minority of friends trying to undermine the Bible's credibility. In spite of overwhelming evidence that the Bible has come down to us substantially uncorrupted, research shows that the Bible stands alone as the most authenticated document in the history of the world. So going back to this idea of the telephone game, this belief that every generation is freely added to and changed the Bible to fit with their own preconceived notions. This was actually put to the test back in 1947. Let me explain. In 1947, one of the most important archaeological finds of our age was made, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, Mohammed Adib, a 12-year-old Arab boy, was trying to find a lost goat about 10 miles east of Jerusalem in an area called Qumran. He tossed a rock into a cave, hoping to startle the goat in case it had wandered into the cave, and instead he heard a jar break. Once he entered the cave, he discovered that the jar he'd broken contained a manuscript, and in the cave there were many more jars. Over the next several years, more than 20 caves full of old scrolls with leather backing were found. In total, they discovered more than 950 documents and text fragments of the Bible. Most of these copies dated from the 3rd century BC to the middle of the 1st century AD. Because the manuscripts were stored in jars and away from the elements in a cave, the manuscripts were miraculously preserved. So get this. The Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament that we've ever discovered. Before they were found, the oldest manuscript we had of the Old Testament was from a thousand years later. A thousand years separated what we had versus what we found. But one of the most amazing finds of all was the book of Isaiah. It was among the best preserved manuscripts they discovered. So now we could finally test this theory with a thousand year time gap separating the copy of the book of Isaiah we had from the one we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we could finally determine whether or not people were constantly changing and adding to the Bible. Would Isaiah's book show signs of alteration? I mean, this is the perfect test. Imagine all the changes that could occur over a thousand year time span. 
So when they compared the two copies of Isaiah, they found only 17 letters were different, none of which had any impact on the meaning of the text. In a thousand years of copying, a book containing tens and thousands of letters, only 17 letters in the entire book were found to be different. So much for this idea that the Bible's been constantly changed by every generation. I mean, people couldn't believe it. But you know why it wasn't changed? Because people believe the Bible to be the Word of God. And you're not free to tamper with the Word of God however you'd like. You're not allowed to change it or add to it or take from it simply because you don't like what it says. By the way, even the most skeptical critics acknowledge this. Bart Ehrman is a famous biblical scholar. He's not a Christian. He's very critical of the Bible in many ways. But even he said, most of the changes found in our early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology. Far and away, the most changes are the result of mistakes, pure and simple, slips of the pen, accidental omissions, inadvertent additions, misspelled words, and blunders of one sort or another. Frankly, people who assert that the Bible's constantly been changed and revised are people who really don't study these things for themselves. They just parrot what they hear other people say. It's also why Norm Geisler said there's more evidence that the Bible is a reliable source than there is for any other book from ancient, from the ancient world. But there's even other ways to answer the question, can the Bible be trusted? Another way is to find outside observers. By outside observers, I mean people outside the Bible itself that lend credence to the things it says. You can find these people both inside and outside the church. For example, the early church fathers are one such group. All these men wrote within the first 150 years of the church. Did you know that even if we lost all the manuscripts of the New Testament, they all disappeared magically, we could re still reconstruct almost the entire New Testament, all 27 books, just from the many places they quoted them. By the way, this is yet another way we can verify how accurate the manuscripts are that we presently have. We can compare them to the quotations in the writings of men like Ignatius, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Polycarp, and others, because they preserve for us the Bible in their writings, their commentaries, and their sermons. One scholar who researched this discovered this. These quotations in the writings of the Church Fathers roused my curiosity, and as I possessed all the existing works of the Fathers of the 2nd and 3rd centuries, I commenced to search, and up to this time, I have found the entire New Testament except 11 verses. If you'd like to read the Church Fathers for yourself, their writings are compiled in a set of books about the size of an encyclopedia, and by the way, a very expensive set of books. Dr. Dan Wallace reminds us, to date, more than 1 million quotations of the New Testament by the Fathers have been recorded. It's not unusual. Uh, I mean, we look at insiders like the church fathers who lend credence to what the Bible says, but outsiders have too. You know, it always surprises me to hear people say, but there still are people who say this, the Bible's just a bunch of made-up stories of people who never existed. But the truth is there's considerable documentation from people who weren't Christian, people outside the Bible. And in some of the cases, these people were adamantly opposed to Christianity that confirmed different aspects of the Christian message. Here's just a few. The Roman historian Thallus, he lived around 50 AD. He described the daytime darkness that fell over the country when Jesus was being crucified. There's the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. He lived around 80 AD, wrote his history of the Jewish war. His works mention Jesus as a wonder worker. He talks about Christ's crucifixion. He talks about Jesus and his founding of Christianity. The Roman historian Tacitus, 
He's the one who told us about Nero's attempt to make someone look guilty for the burning of Rome. Listen to what he wrote. Hence to suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with the guilt and punishment with the most exquisite tortures, the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. So none of these writers were followers of Christ, yet they all knew Jesus existed, that his followers thought that, that, his followers thought that Jesus was God, which is why Oxford University professor Christopher Tuckett said this, the fact that Jesus existed, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, seems to be a part of the bedrock of historical tradition. If nothing else, the non-Christian evidence can provide us with certainty on that score. So are there outside observers and are there others? Well, absolutely. I mean, I literally could go on. The existence of Jesus Christ was recorded by Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, the Talmud, even Lucian all have references to different aspects of our Christian faith. But there's another place that we can look to where outsiders attest to the truth of Scripture, and that's the field of archaeology. In other words, physical evidence. I'm talking stuff you can literally lay your hands on and say, yes, the Bible's been verified in this point by this artifact from history. That's why if you want to know the Bible can be trusted, another powerful way we do that is to examine the physical evidence. Let me just give you a quick list of some of the archaeological discoveries that have confirmed biblical events. The fall of Nineveh, as predicted by the prophets Nahum and Zephaniah, it was recorded on the tablet of Nepobelozar. The fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon in 2 Kings, it was recorded on the Babylonian Chronicles. The fall of Babylon to the Medes and the Persians that Daniel talks about in chapter 5 of his book was recorded on the Cyrus Cylinder. Also on the Cyrus Cylinder, you have the freeing of the captives in Babylon by Cyrus the Great from the book of Ezra. The Taylor Prism confirms the Assyrian siege on Jerusalem, which the Bible describes in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. And the Moabite stone records the Moab rebellion mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 3. Chapter three. So besides those archaeological finds, there's all sorts of digs going on in Israel all the time, still uncovering vital information about the world of Jesus. So let me just share a few of these discoveries that have happened since we've started Spring Creek in 1990. There are numerous finds that prove bits and pieces of the gospel story. You know, the Pool of Siloam was only discovered in 2004. I've been there. A house from Jesus' hometown in Nazareth was discovered in 2009. An early first century synagogue was also discovered in 2009 on the Lake Galilee. But these are not even the most significant results of archaeology. Critics have often seized on Bible characters who surround Jesus in the gospels and claim that they never existed. For example, a well-known political and religious leader in Jesus' day was Caiaphas, the high priest. He presided over Jesus' trial. Critics said about him, there's no record of him outside the Bible. He's not mentioned in any other literature. You can't find his name on any buildings or anything else. He's just a made-up character and a made-up story. But in 1990, workers building a water park in Jerusalem inadvertently broke through the ceiling of a hidden burial chamber from the first century AD. In that chamber, they found a box that's Caiaphas' burial box, which identified the person inside as Caiaphas the high priest. We've literally found this guy. Then the critics said, never mind. Or what about King David? For years, critics alleged that, that David was just too flamboyant to be true. 
adultery, murder, Israel's most spectacular king, yet no mention of him outside the Bible. They said the story's not credible. So it became fashionable in academic circles to dismiss David's stories as just mere invention, a kind of folklore to give the Jews a narrative to back up their dynasty. Whereas Jeffrey Sheeler observed, the critics' verdict was that David was nothing more than a, polit- than a figure of religious and political mythology. That's what people believe for years. But on July 21st, 1993, workers at the Tel Dan excavation site unearthed a shattered monument. It's called the Tel Dan Steel. On it, there's an inscription with a reference to the King of Israel and the House of David. That's what the arrow on the screen is pointing to. It was the first clue of any kind outside of the Bible that King David ever existed. This was such shocking news, it made the cover of U.S. News & World Report. Let me quote from that article. The reference to David was a historical bombshell. Never before had the familiar name of Judah's ancient warrior king, a central figure in the Hebrew Bible, and according to scripture, Christian scripture, an ancestor of Jesus, been found in the records of antiquity outside the pages of the Bible. Skeptics had long seized upon the fact to argue that David was a mere legend. Time magazine even joined in on the chorus condemning the critics. The skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend. In fact, you know, this story was so shocking that critics insisted that the find was phony or that the inscription had been incorrectly translated. But a year later, archaeologists found even more fragments of the monument with additional inscriptions referencing David. Today, the new scholarly consensus is that David was real, not because the Bible says so, but because archaeology has proven it. The New Testament also tells us the story of Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman governor of Judea at the time of Christ, who oversaw Jesus' trial and then sentenced him to death by crucifixion. But for years, critics insisted that Pilate, too, was just a legend. So back in the year I was born, in 1961, archaeologists were digging in Caesarea on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. And while they're clearing away sand and overgrowth from a jumbled pile of ruins of a Roman theater, the archaeologists made an astonishing find. It's called the Pilate Stone. It was a limestone block that had actually been repurposed, and it bore an inscription in Latin dating to the early part of the first century that mentioned Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. This inscription verified that Pontius Pilate was an actual historical person, that he reigned in the same position described in the Gospels, and as prefect. Now, that's the old find, but there's something really cool that's only recently happened in regard to Pilate. I mentioned this in our series where we looked at the villains in the Easter story. I'm talking about the Pilate ring. You see, Pilate's ring was actually found 50 years ago, but nobody knew it was Pilate's ring until just five years ago largely because we've made so many advancements in terms of cleaning methods and advanced photography. Archaeologists began examining the ring more closely, and they determined that the inscription on the ring, what it actually said, was Pilate's personal name. So both the Bible and archaeology back up the story of Pontius Pilate. These are the external witnesses to the truthfulness of the Bible. Now, I want to be careful. Archaeology is never going to prove the Bible. And you're never going to have 100% proof that allows you to believe without having any faith. That's just not the way God works. And that wouldn't be faith. But the bottom line is that when it comes to the issue of reliability, the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that the Bible is not a book of fairy tales, but an authentic and accurate portrayal of real people and real events in history. 
In a sense, you need less faith today to believe the historical biblical account than people who lived just 50 years ago. A fifth important way to test the Bible's trustworthiness is consider its uniqueness. In the book, I'm Glad You Asked, the authors say this, the scriptures have survived through time, persecution, and criticism. There have been numerous attempts to burn, ban, and systematically eliminate the Bible, but all have failed. The Bible has been subjected to more abuse, perversion, destruction, destructive criticism, and pure hate than any other book, yet it continues to stand the test of time while its critics are refuted and forgotten. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It holds the world record for the greatest number of books in circulation in the history of the world, somewhere between five and seven billion. It's been copied and translated more extensively than any other book in human history into 1,900 languages at last count. The Bible's statistics are even more impressive when you consider the fact that of all the new books that are written and published every year, less than 1% are still being produced just seven years later. Sounds like God has worked overtime to make sure this book is preserved, doesn't it? That shouldn't surprise us since Jesus himself once said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It was Bernard Ram who wrote this a thousand times over the century. The death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the flowers ordered, the inscription placed on the tombstone, and the eulogy written, but somehow the corpse never stays put. If the Bible was just a fairy tale and as hopelessly flawed as some people allege, those people are just a tiny minority of people because there's something about this book that has catapulted it to the spheres of influence and notoriety that other books never achieve. Now, at this point in the message, I think we're probably all in serious danger of being on egghead overload. So let me cut back to the heart of the matter. All these facts are great and certainly present such convincing proof that they simply can't be dismissed out of hand. But we're not done until we do step six. Compare it to your experience. Facts and research are great. I, it's something I could literally do all day. But there's also a very personal reason why I believe and trust the Bible. Because this book pointed me to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ changed my life. And not just mine, but plenty of others too. There are many healed marriages in this church because of the truth taught in this book. There are addictions that have been shattered because of the Bible's truthfulness and the God who stands behind every promise we find in its pages. People like me who know our lives will never be the same because Christ and through his guidebook, I have healing, I have hope, and I know have a future forever with God. People who've encountered Christ in the pages of this book often come away from such an encounter truly transformed. Dennis Prager, regardless of what you might think of him, he's a Jewish talk show host who once made a brilliant point in a debate with a skeptic. He said this, if you were stranded on a street alone at night, your, your car had broken down, say at 2 a.m. on a lonely street in Los Angeles, none of the streetlights were working. You get out of your car when suddenly you see 10 big burly men coming out of a house walking towards you. Would it or would it not be comforting to you for you to know that they were coming out of a Bible study. I can tell you this, even though I've read a lot of books and paper and have done tons of research, the most priceless data, data that I've learned from the Bible is quite simply this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is a book that has a message about someone who can change your life forever. This is a book, if you will trust its message, 
He is willing and able to do in, through, and for you what you cannot do for yourself. Honestly, if I didn't trust the Bible in its, in its history and all the other things about which I can verify, why would I ever trust it about something I could never verify, that Jesus Christ is the way, that he died for me, that he made a path for me to know him? Why would I trust it there about something I could never know about if the things I feel like I do know about are hopelessly flawed? I believe this Bible. I believe it can be trusted. And I believe that the Savior that it talks about, he can be trusted. Trust him with your life today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have together to just kind of stop down and to look objectively at your truth, to ask the more difficult questions, questions that seekers will often ask, people who are outside the faith, people who've heard other people disparage or or cause them to question whether or not the Bible is a reliable book. Today, I've done my best to try to lay out for our people and those who are listening what we do know from history, what we do know about um, the witnesses we have, what archaeologists have taught us, what what we have learned from those who are in history uh, witnesses to what happened in Christianity. God, in all these things, we see that this is a very reliable book, that it's a trustworthy book, that in terms of its manuscript authority, we can have great confidence that what has come down to us has come down to us unadulterated. So I thank you, God, for that confidence. But most of all, God, I pray that that confidence would lead us to the reality that Jesus, you came to die for us. You died on a cross, you rose again so that we might have life. And that you said that by believing in you, by trusting in you, to those who receive him, he gives the right to become the sons of God. That God, when we receive you as our Lord and our Savior, we become the children of God. So let someone today who for for the first time maybe these These questions have been taken seriously and answered in a substantive way that it clears the deck so that they can now trust who Jesus is and what he's done for them. I pray it in your precious name. Amen. You know, anytime you're with us, anytime you make a decision or you have a question, we'd love to hear about that. If you want to know more about what it means to become a Christian, please text us. Let us know. Say, hey, I'm new here. You can text the word new to 96995, our text line, and someone will get back with you right away to let you know what it means to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. I just thank you so much for being with us today. I hope it's a great week.